This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Tony Hall um, about his book titled Great Trees of Britain and Ireland, uh, published by Reed Media in 2022. Tony Hall is the senior arbore- the, the head of the Arboretum, my apologies, at the Royal Botanic Gardens in Kew in London, England, um, and brings a massive amount of experience to this book where he profiles over 70 ancient trees, avenues and forests in Britain and Ireland. Um, it's an absolutely fascinating book, both in the journey that it takes readers on, as well as the stories of the actual individual trees by themselves. Um, so I'm really excited to welcome Tony to the podcast. Hi, uh, as Miranda says, um, I'm Tony Hall. I work at um, Kew Gardens. I've been here for a little over 20 years now. Uh, I work my way through various roles. I'm now head of the Arboretum at Kew. But my my actual love of trees started long, long before I came to Kew. So from the day I left school, I left school on a, on a Friday at the end of the week. And the very following Monday, I started in a role um, as an apprentice arborist. So that was now more than 40 years ago. And my lifelong fascination of trees has just continued on throughout that time so I've had various jobs say the last 20 years I've been working at Kew in the Arboretum Arboretum here Um, but trees have always been always been my true love so I have I have a real passion for everything tree related and particularly ancient trees so a lot of my free time I actually spend going out into our local countryside looking at lots of the old ancient forests and the old woodlands and the old trees i mean they all they're, they're so characterful you know when, when when you walk through some of the woodlands particularly the ancient woodlands they're, they're just yeah they're just absolutely amazing places so it's something i really love to do and because i enjoy it so much i tried to in this book uh, on on trees, mostly ancient trees. What I've tried to do is is impart some of my knowledge, but also some of the history behind some of the trees that I've seen and enjoyed. And so, hopefully, other people can enjoy them and and also, you know, go out go out and have a look look at them. I wrote a book about five years ago on, on a, a, a similar theme, but this was all on yew trees, and yew trees are our oldest trees in the UK. And depending on what you read and, and some of the, the history on the trees, they can be anything up to 5,000 years old. Generally, they're between one and 3,000 years old. Um, so 
I'd written that book and it went down really well and people really enjoyed it. So what I decided to do was to to, to look at more trees, different trees other than yews, um, around the UK and then, yeah, pick some of the ones that I thought were really good, had really good stories, lots of history, were visually very interesting. Um, and that's really how I came to, to write this book. So it's kind of accumulation of all my years of my enjoyment and trying to impart that to others through through the book. That's very cool. Thank you for explaining that. Um, I think it really does speak to the book, um, the combination of knowledge and enthusiasm both come through um, really quite strongly. And so I'd love to kind of, we're obviously, unfortunately, not going to be able to ask you about every tree in the book. That would be very cool, but also very long. <laughs> yeah. um, so instead, I'm going to sort of pick and choose a little bit um, some of the trees and also some of the kind of knowledge that you bring to this um, to create the book. And so to start off with, I'd love to start off with something um, that you bring up right at the beginning of the book that I will admit I was not expecting. Um, yes, it's a book about trees. And so this maybe seems like an obvious thing and I should have been expecting it, but I was not really expecting to be thinking about what the definition of a tree is and what the definition of native is in this context. Um, but I'm really glad I have now thought about it because it turns out to be much more interesting and much more complicated than I thought. So can you help us understand what do we need to know about the definitions of the word native and the word tree in order to understand kind of the number and the range of native species of trees that there are in Britain and Ireland. Okay, so I'll do native first. So the, the definition for certain, well, us here in the UK anyway, is for a tree that's been native to Britain is, is one that's colonised the land here since, no, after the last ice age, which was around 10,000 years ago, and before the UK disconnected from mainland Europe, which was in our middle stone age, so around 8,000 years. So trees that were here between eight and 10,000 years ago, we call our British native trees. So there's there's lots of them. There's like our oak, ash, birch, elm, uh, and then a couple of our evergreen trees. We only have three evergreens in the UK. We have yew, holly, I know we saw we had four, yew, holly, uh, Scots pine, and juniper. Uh, and also lime trees. So there, there's quite a, a, a wide range, but also there, there's lots of shrubs as well. Um, and the, the the difference between a shrub and a tree is kind of a grey area. And it's almost it's almost one of those things like you kind of, if you look at something, you know which one it is, but that's only if you've been in horticulture or botany for years and years. But the way the way we try to define the two is that a tree is a long-lived woody plant and it usually has a single trunk with very few low branches but there are lots of trees particularly ornamental trees that we now grow things like birches things that have really attractive bark where, where we use them and we grow them as a multi-stem tree so that we get more more bark so kind of more enjoyment but technically the way we define a difference between a tree and a shrub is that a tree is something that has a single trunk with very few lower branches. A shrub is still a woody plant, generally smaller than a tree, and it has many more branches arising from near, from near ground level. So the, the, the two kind of conflict, and there is a very grey area, and it is kind of one of those things that, for me, you know, I, I can kind of look at a tree and say, that's a tree and that's a shrub. 
but to explain it is 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 a little bit more difficult but and yeah, for that, someone that, like that's... myself who's not a botanist i should maybe stay away from determining whether or not something is a tree yeah most i mean you can't even say shrubs flower more than trees because so many trees obviously do have flowers they may not be as exciting as some of the shrubs but yeah generally anything that's got a clear stem um naturally that doesn't have low branches is a tree okay but then and what sorry go ahead sorry no, go on. Oh, no, and I was just going to just go back on on the native thing. So, mm-hmm. yeah, our, our our native trees. So there are things like beech trees which haven't been here that long that we we tend to say are native. That strictly by our definition, things that have been here since the, up between the ice age and the disconnect from Europe, that that is what we really do call our British native trees. And there are and many. So how many? What? So besides. Uh, what, what would be some of the trees that we think are native but are actually completely not? Uh, we have we have so many. So a lot of our um, certainly the beech trees are not. Um, chestnuts are not. I'm actually looking out of my window now at, at the trees <laughs> in the arboretum and trying to look at all the trees that are out there to try and to well, try and are, jog my memory. Those are two quite common ones that I think I probably would have thought were native. Um, yeah, and, lo- so. and lots of conifers. I mean, we we only have we only have three conifers. So we, we have juniper, Scots pine, and we have a third one which has just gone from my head. Oh, the yew tree, which is our mm-hmm. oldest tree. So yeah, there are there are there are quite a few trees that none's coming to the top of my head at the minute. But things that people would think you know, like beech and like sweet chestnut that people would think are native, but yeah, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're technically not natives, although so, they have been here since Roman times. Time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So one other definitional thing um, that come came up throughout the book that, again, I had not really thought that much about, um, what is a woodland versus a forest? And what makes a woodland ancient? Again, this is <clears throat> this is one of those kind of grey areas. So we tend to, we tend to call... I mean, one person's woodland is another person's forest, basically. So when what, what we call a woodland in the UK is just an area, a wooded area of trees. But so the forests in the UK, most of those were really areas that were, they were, they, they, they were, they were given, um, they were, they, 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 they were, I'm trying to think of the word. They were royal forests. So what they were, they were they were forests that were, were used by royalty and nobility for hunting. So what they did, they used to enclose a, an area of land. And within that land, it was only royalty and the nobility that were, able, were allowed to hunt in that area. But those areas weren't always forests as we call forests today. Some of them were like open moorland. So they actually had no trees in whatsoever. So that's where it's a kind of a grey area. So some of the ones that did have trees in were called forests, but even the open moorland, they still called a forest. So it, it was a term that was used by nobility and royalty as an area that only they could use for hunting. But because some of the oldest areas, we have we have an area called Epping Forest and we have Sherwood Forest. These are two areas that were used um, by by Edward, I think Edward the Fifth, the Sixth, and Henry the Eighth, as royal hunting forests. So, because we still have those lands protected, and, and they were always called a forest, and they are 
probably 50% trees. That kind of, the name forest has sort of come down with those trees or with those areas. So really a woodland is a more useful term for an area that has trees, but we, yeah, we use both. I'm not sure um, in the States what, what they would call that or in, in other countries they would call that. But for us, yeah, woodland is is really a better term to use. Good to know. And you mentioned the impact, um, the quite widespread um, and long-lasting impact of the monarchy on a lot of these areas in terms of kind of what they were called. Were there any other um, ways that we can maybe still see or saw for a really long time um, royal law impacting forests and woodlands across the country? I think most of, most of the areas, some of the ones I've, that I've described, so some, some of our oldest forests are they're left over from old royal hunting forests. So most, many of our ancient forests, many of our ancient trees are in those protected areas and they, they've had that protection forever. So they've kind of been taken up by, we, we, we have a, um, a group called the National Trust who take on a lot of the old historic buildings, a lot of the old historic land for the nation. We all pay into it, it's a kind of a charity. And they, they look after a lot of these ancient forests that were once titled as royal forests. And so that royalty, which protected them four, five, six hundred years ago, still gives them protection or the, that protection has kind of carried on today. So without those ancient rights, a lot of that, a lot of that land would be lost to building and agriculture. So we, we kind of have that those those old titles to thank for many of our many of our ancient trees i would think probably something like i don't know maybe even as much as 75 percent of our ancient woodland was once royal royal land that's a pretty significant impact yeah um and so we've been talking kind of in broad terms right about key definitions that apply really across the country um and across multiple countries right england uh, scotland wales and uh, both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. Um, but obviously, broad definitions only go so far in a book where you want to interest, introduce us to specific trees or places. Um, and you can't include all of them. How did you choose first that you would do 60? And then how did you choose which 60 trees? Okay, well, it kind of started off as 50, and then it ended up near 80, and then I, I sort of pulled it back down to 60. I mentioned earlier that I'd written a book previously called The Immortal You, and in that I'd, I'd spoken about and written about 75 different ancient yews. So I obviously couldn't use that many yews again because that was some of the better yews across the UK. So what, what I really tried to do, and it was quite difficult, was to try and pick different tree species that was spread across all parts of Britain and Ireland. So what I was trying to do was to get, you know, if you lived in Scotland, it wasn't, I didn't want to, just want to talk about trees that were grown in the south of England. And, you know, if you lived in Ireland, again, I didn't want to talk about trees that just grew in Scotland. So I was trying to mix it up so that everyone across the country would have a tree or some trees that would be re relatively close to them. And they wouldn't all be, although the, the book is six of the best ancient trees, avenues and forests, there are a couple of trees in there that are, are not actually ancient, but they are they have like a really good story. Like there's there's a plain in Ireland that's it's got a, a, an old ancient um, 
park bench embedded into it. It's almost like the tree is eating the bench. So there are a few trees like that in the book. Um, so I want to mix up a little bit, but but generally they're they're um, they're mostly ancient trees and avenues. So it was very difficult. I had a lot to choose from. I say I went got up to about eighty. I could have probably made it hundred or hundred and fifty, but I was also I had I had a, a limit on the kind of the word count. So that kind of worked in my favour. So it sort of reined me in a little bit so that I couldn't go off on a tangent or, <laughs> you know, write too many things about other things. Mm. So, yeah, it was, it was a difficult choice, but I, I, I settled on 60, having started off telling the publishers I would only do 50. Well, I suppose comparatively, you know, 50 to 60 is not that big a jump. It could it's close. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, more enjoyment. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I want to ask about some of these trees um, and sort of the obvious place it seems to start is obviously with the, tree, with the trees surrounding you all the time at your job. So yep. I'm wondering if you can explain to us kind of what does it mean to be head of the Arboretum at Kew and what are some of the significant trees from Kew that you chose to include in the book? Okay, well, apart from probably having the most wonderful office in the world, I'm surrounded by 360 acres of basically parkland, but lots of ancient trees, lots of old historic trees. Uh, we have more. We we have this we have this group of what we call champion trees. So there's a champion tree register of Britain and Ireland, and what that has in it, it has the trees that may be of their type, the oldest. You know, it may even be the smallest the rarest um and and we have something like 400 of those trees within the grounds at Kew so I sit within 360 acres I manage about two-thirds of that uh, and within that landscape <clears throat> we have around 12,000 12,000 trees we plant a few new ones every year because obviously we're we're losing trees and some of the oldest trees in the gardens go back to when the original Arboretum was built, which was very small, 10 acres, a small uh, plot on, 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 on what is now a much huger area in 1760. So some of those original trees, we actually call our Q lions. So there's five of those, five different species, uh, and they're wonderful trees. Um, you know, lots of people come to admire them and obviously lots of photographs are taken around them. And... One of the ones that I included in the book is it's called a rabinia. It's a common name is the black locust tree. And it's a huge tree that has uh, metal bands around it. It's in the book. So the, the old metal bands were holding the trunk together to stop it from pulling itself apart. But now the bands have actually snapped and it actually makes it more picturesque when you when you look at the tree. Um, and it's the oldest of its type in the UK. So it was it was a, it was a great tree to. Uh, to add into the book but there yeah again it was one of those things where there were so many trees that I could have included and I could have used but really you know I, I, I stuck to that one particular tree. Mm. It is quite iconic in a lot of ways in the book um, for listeners who uh, haven't seen the book yet it is perhaps unsurprisingly um, a book with lots of photographs in it so you get to see the trees in some form um, and so when you say you manage sort of two-thirds of this enormous space, what, what does it actually mean to manage an arboretum? So day-to-day, -day, I have around uh, 40 staff and um, probably 20 students. We have, a, we have a diploma course at, at Kew, 
which runs over three years. And those dipl- those diploma students, they spend nine months of each year. It's a three-year course, I just said. So they, they spend nine months of each year in a garden placement, working at different areas of the garden, because we have a tropical section, which has a lot of glass houses in, and then we have a, a garden section, which is a lot more ornamental. But the Arboretum is much more woodlandy it's it's much less formal than a lot of the garden it's a quieter space so you can you can come and wander around amongst you know trees that have been growing here for best part of 300 years and within the tree collections we also have our shrub collections so the day-to-day running is really just organizing the teams to just maintain the gardens basically so looking after the trees looking after the shrubs we also recycle all of our green waste in the garden so all of the grass cuttings all of the all of the prunings any of the trees that die they all come back into our our service yard and they're all chipped and recycled and then they go back out as mulch back out onto the onto the beds and the trees so we can we can turn a you know a mature tree that may have died or may have come over in a storm or something like that we can turn it from a an actual tree to usable compost in 12 weeks so we have a really fast toner we have a really good recycling unit so yeah everything is recycled so the trees that die things that are pruned all go back out to feed the trees and shrubs that are Mm -hmm. out in the garden so it is really just maintaining the day-to-day running with my team of course and one of the you in fact talk quite a lot in the book about two kind of techniques of managing trees um that seem to have quite a lot of history behind them. And I'm almost certainly going to butcher the pronunciation because if you haven't noticed, I am not a tree manager at all. Um, Coppicing and pollarding. Perfect Um, pronunciations. Lovely, thank you. Can you kind of tell us about what these are, maybe through examples of trees where this has been done in the book um, and explain kind of whether, you know, these are really old practices. Have they changed at all over the centuries? I mean, they, they are really, really old practice. I mean, they we know they go back at least four thousand years. When some of the old some of the old trackways in some of our areas like what we call our Somerset levels, which are our, our wet, boggy areas, the um, during like Stone Age times, Iron Age times, even they 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 would have built trackways through those, and through archaeological digs. They have found coppice hazel that's at least 4,000 years old. So it's a very old practice. I mean, it's um, more used through medieval times as a, as a woodland management. And the two things are very, very similar. They're both, they both use the tree's ability to be able to produce new growth after being cut back hard. There are quite a few different species of trees that you can do that with. Hazel is the one that's mostly used because it regenerates really quickly but lime oak beech birch there's 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 lots of others as well so basically what it is if you're if you're coppicing a tree you let the tree get to around about 10 or 12 years old and then you cut it off very close to the base and then what that does is that that gets the tree stump which is called a what is it called will come back to me in a minute uh, it's called a stall when 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 you cut it back to to a stall what it does all the dormant buds that are very low down then are reactivated and come back into life and it produces lots and lots of shoots around that coppiced base where you've cut it right back to the ground 
And then depending what you're using the wood for, it can be used for animal fodder uh, that some of the younger shoots. It can be used for um, making fencing, panelling. A lot of the old houses were what they used to call wattle and daub. And wattle is where they they grow quite thin stems of hazel, which are split, and then they're, they're weaved through each other to make like panels. And then that's kind of how a lot of the old houses were built. And then they were... They were covered like plastering, but they were covered with mud, which is called daub. It's a mixture of mud and straw and, and soil. So they can be used for that. It can, they can be left to grow for longer. Obviously, a lot of the oak um, was used in the UK. A lot of the coppiced uh, oak was used for shipbuilding and house building. So there's, there's lots of different uses. And, and depending on the type of tree and how long you let it grow, that determines the thickness of the of the poles, the stems that are regrowing, and they can be used for all those different things. So that's coppicing, where you cut it really low to the ground, um, and it's called a stall. And what it also does is it prolongs the life of the tree. So we have a, a garden not too far away. It's about an hour's drive away from Kew. It's called, it's called Western Burke Arboretum. And in there, they have a, a coppiced lime, common lime, Tilia cordata, which is thought to be anywhere between 1,500 and 2,000 years old. And what that is, it's, it's about, it's, it's over 80 foot across. But what it is, it's made up of lots of different stalls. So if you can imagine, you know, kind of when you throw a pebble in a pool and the ripples go out further and further and further, it kind of works in that way. So you start off with a really small trunk in the middle that's cut back. And as it expands, it gets wider and wider and wider because the living tissue is only on the outside. And then as it gets really old, that circle kind of breaks up into, into sections. So they're all part of the same tree, but they're not, they're not joined. So on the really old ones, um, and that one I say is somewhere around about 1500 years old, they get really big, but they continue to produce new growth year after year after year. You sort of keep the juvenility, even though it's very ancient. So it actually extends the life of, of the tree as well. And the same is true of pollarding. The differences with pollarding is the tree trunk is left to grow to a certain height, and then it's cut off around about head height. And what you do, you get you get exactly the same thing. You get all the dormant buds around where you've cut it off. They all, they all sprout. The reason it's cut, higher is because in medieval times they used to so that's like the 1600s they used to use the land beneath the trees for grazing sheep cattle ponies horses so they had to they had to make this new growth grow above the height of where these animals could could graze because they really love the new shoots so if you're if you if you have coppice you have to have it fenced in because obviously you're growing new growth at ground level uh, and the animals will just eat it as soon as it comes through and, and you wouldn't get anything so pollarding is is the same technique but it's done above head height so above grazing and that's what they call an area of wood pasture so you have the pasture land beneath which the animals can graze and then the wood renewal growth above so that's really the kind of difference between the two. Mm. And where might we see examples of pollarded trees now? Are there any in the book? There are in the book. So some of the old some of the old pollards 
are in some of the ancient woodlands. And the reason some of those are pollarded, they've continued the pollarding from hundreds of years ago because what it does is it actually keeps the tree growing for much, much longer. So, I mean, an example would be something like normally a beech tree might grow to, I don't know, let's say three or 400 years old, probably, and that would be then classed as an ancient tree. If a tree's pollarded, it could probably get to twice that, so 800 years old. So what they're doing, they're, they're maintaining the old practices. So in a lot of our old forests, uh, Epping Forest, there's a there's a, uh, a, a, um, a story in the book, Burnham Beaches. Burnham Beaches is an area which is full of beech trees, uh, and they've been pollarded as wood pasture, so above head height for something like about four or five hundred years and they're maintaining that practice to keep those trees going if they if they let them grow now without them being repollarded what would happen is that the timbers above the old cut will get so big they will just break the tree apart so to keep those trees growing then they continue that practice and a lot of the coppicein coppicein has had a has a, had a a, a renewal really within the UK because we're all being much more greener and much more sustainable what they're doing is they're using a lot of coppiced woodland now for making fence panels for making charcoal so it's it's a it's an industry that had been going for thousands of years kind of died out maybe 200 years maybe 100 years ago but is now seeing uh, seeing a renewal so some of our oldest ancient woodlands that had been left to become just totally overgrown are now being reused and repollarded and recoppiced. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a thing that's going on again. And then, then there is this thing in between the two. And again, it's in the book. It's something that's called a coppard. So that's a cross between a coppice and a pollard, if that makes sense. So, so what it is, it's, it's a tree, trees that were originally coppiced cut off to the ground they had been left to grow till they had become too big to coppice anymore so then they were cut at around head height again as many individual stems and then they grew out again from them so yeah when, when you see those in the book they're they're very unusual and, and actually quite rare and the only place i found them growing in the uk is um in Epping Forest, which is a yeah a very a very well known forest in in the UK for highway robbers and and all sorts of things. Dick <laughs> Turpin and whoever may have heard of him as yeah frequented frequented those areas. So well, and famous yeah. for its trees now, and That's massively famous for its trees. <laughs> um, so you talked about the full title of um, the book mentions or you, you mentioned kind of there, there's not just individual trees um, and we've sort of discussed that a little bit already um, but I'd love to kind of bring listeners attention to one of the most extreme examples in the book the tallest hedge in the world where is yeah. it how is it so tall how do you maintain such a tall hedge I think it's up in Scotland it's in it's in Perthshire it's in an, uh, an area called Blair Gallery uh, and it actually grows along a main road. So originally it was planted, um, I can't remember the exact, exact dates, but it was it was one of the early wars in the 1700s, I think. Uh, and it was originally planted as a boundary hedge along the side of the road uh, around a nobleman's land. Um, 
and story has it he went off to war and things got left and you know by the time he came back the tree was much bigger in fact he didn't come back he died i think he died in battle um and the tree got to a certain height and rather than bring it right back down <clears throat> they allowed it to continue to grow so it's it's an amazing and it's, a, it's an amazing hedge when you, you you're kind of driving down all these just kind of normal roads through the countryside in in scotland and then there's this big long road that sort of goes down the dip and then comes up again and all along one side is this wall of green so it's about 100 feet tall it's actually taller it's an average about 100 feet tall i think the highest part of it is about 120 feet so it's a really a really really tall tree and because it's beech beech trees have the most amazing autumn color they 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 go coppery tones of yellows and reds and almost yeah coppery but almost fiery so in the autumn it is absolutely spectacular i mean spectacular all through the year but particularly particularly in the autumn so it runs about 600 yards along one side of the road and to maintain it is is an absolute mammoth task it's it's only pruned about once every 10 years and in actual fact I, i i saw it last cut about seven years ago in the book I think is about two years ago when I photographed it. So it had regrown quite a bit because they, they do cut it back. They don't take down the height very much, but they take down the side because as you can imagine, it grows along a main road. So it needs to be you know kept back away from particularly lorries and things that, that thunder along there. So it's about 600 yards long. And when I saw it being cut, they use these big hydraulic lifts, what we call cherry pickers, that can take a man up as high as they need it takes around six weeks uh, and they have four of those hydraulic lifts working all what five days a week to do that so yeah six weeks um to main to maintain that and you know when, when i looked at how high it was it probably wasn't quite that high 100 years ago but i can't imagine how long it would have taken and what a scary task it would have been to have been up a a wooden ladder at something like you know 70 or 80 feet working along there with primitive tools cutting the hedge back it must have taken yeah, much much longer i mean today they you know they, they had the luxury of having hydraulic lifts and and chainsaws and you know power tools to do that where before it would have been all done by hand and yeah rickety old ladders so but it is i mean it's a it's, it's a it's a it's a great it's a great sight to see as you drive along the road this wall of green that just towers above you it's pretty imposing, even in a photograph in a book. Yeah. Uh, so I can only imagine. But yeah, it's, it's really interesting to note kind of how we've just been talking about the coppicing and pollarding, which really haven't changed that much. And even the techniques don't, they're not really that different. And yet when it comes to something that sounds simple, like hedge trimming, actually, the technology's massively, massively changed. Massively, massively changed. But it needs to massively change to cut a massive hedge. Yeah. <laughs> Well, exactly. Um, so I wanted to ask about, you have more than one of these in the book, um, but you talk about ancient trees that maybe if you, for some of them, certainly even when you just look at them, uh, they look like they're dying or dead or hollowed yeah. out, or they don't necessarily look like they're living and still okay, essentially. And yet, as you describe in the book, quite a number of them, um, even if they do look hollowed out, the ones that they, they are still living, um, they are still part of that ecosystem, often kind of integrated really nicely within their like immediate surroundings and ecosystem. So can you maybe tell us about kind of 
one or a few of those ancient trees in that sort of state? Yeah, there's, 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 a, there's a great forest. Well, I mean, lots of the forests have a lot of these ancient trees, in, but there's a great forest called Seven, Seven Lake Forest. And within that, there are probably almost as many ancient oaks as, as, as in any other in any other forest in the UK, there are one or two, or a few more, but that that's that's a really a really good one because it has ancient beech in there and it has some ancient uh, birch and things in there. But when when you look at <clears throat> and particularly oaks, oaks and yews are probably the, the the two trees that hollow out more than any other. So when a tree is growing fairly young and and given room, you know you can imagine that they get very very big, and the central part of the tree, the heartwood, is actually dead wood. The only living tissue is is around the outside of a tree. Um, so what it is, that's like structural timber. So as a tree grows bigger and bigger, you know, the tree gets broader with each year. Uh, and, and the amount of heartwood, dead structural wood in, in the centre obviously gets more. So that, that's where the tree gets its stability from. But as trees start to get older and they do start to get decay through different fungus and, and different things, then it's the, there's, there's, there's a lot of things that actually live on the heartwood of a tree. So it's the heartwood that starts to rot generally, generally first. But trees have got a really cunning strategy for this. So what they do, a lot of the old oaks and yews particularly, is they actually start to shed some of their, the top of their canopy. So they're, they're bigger upper branches. And so they actually reduce their self in height as they get wider and as the central tree starts to rot away, so they're not carrying the same amount of weight, so they become much more stable. So now they're very, very wide. They've got a very small canopy. It's what we call stag-headed. So if you imagine a deer's um, antlers, that's kind of how an ancient tree generally looks. So rather than having a big, broad-spreading canopy, it now comes right down to a small head of branches above it and it's it's what the tree can actually maintain and they're always around the outside edge obviously because that's living tissue and a lot of the inside of the tree has died away so structurally they're still generally very very strong even though they look like they're dying and, and they've got no center of the trees this is where it becomes very difficult to age ancient trees because obviously the, the easiest way to age a tree is by counting the rings in a tree but if the center's gone then you can't do that so a lot of a lot of the aging of trees that we age in the uk as ancient trees is done by measurement girth measurement but again there's a bit of flexibility you know depending on the environment where they're growing some grow harder and not so hard you know some are in areas of high rainfall so they grow they grow quite a lot quicker so there's it's it's, it's what we call a guesstimate you can't always get the age exactly but from measuring trees that they know historically age-wise this is a um the way that they've worked out how to how to sort of age or guesstimate the the age of a tree so some of these trees that look like they're dying and particularly oaks oaks have something like about four thousand different um species of flora and fauna that survive on an oak tree and some of them only can survive on the dead and the dying matter from an oak tree that is between six and eight hundred years old. So they they have a very they have a very specific thing within the ecosystem. So you know, apart from these trees needing to be protected because of their age, also the flora and fauna that depend and live on them 
as part of the whole ecosystem within some of these ancient woodlands is all you know part of that bigger picture that bigger story so you're not only looking after the tree but you're looking after lots of rare insects particularly lots of mosses lots of fungi you know but they're they're, they're home to birds nesting bat roosting there's yeah there's, there's lots going on around ancient trees particularly oaks why particularly oaks well because they're they're our biggest and oldest broad broadleafed tree that's native to britain so they've evolved over you know 10,000 years to have all those i mean a lot of the things that that were that were here as native trees are quite short lived things like birches you know maybe live two or 300 years would be a very old birch tree i mean they're more likely to live probably 70 or 80 years and the same with hazel um and a, and a lot of trees but because because oaks live so long and become you know such a size they are a they're home to a lot more because there's a lot more cavities a lot more opening but things have had have had centuries to evolve with those trees so yeah the oak, the oak is our, our best tree for the, the the biggest number by far of different flora and fauna and invertebrates that live in and around an oak and particularly an ancient oak i'd love to turn our attention to um a set of trees that also have a lot clearly going on in their immediate environs but in this case less about flora and fauna and more about humans um and human activity which is uh, a park in nottinghamshire that is a massive avenue of clearly pretty old trees that have relatively visible big bands around the trunk in black and white paint. Yeah, it's, it's really strange. These are lime trees. And, you know, we, 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 have, we have trees like plane trees, which we grow in London because they shed their bark. So they're really good at getting rid of all the pollution in the air and so every year they just they've got bark peeling off all the time but with lime trees that they they keep hold of their bark they 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 use a little but very very little so they continue to grow outwards obviously but they don't that they, they they keep the original bark so the bands the bands on those trees at um clumber park in in nottinghamshire were actually grease bands painted on over 100 years ago and the, the trees were actually being decimated by what we call a winter moth. It's, it's a, the pupae of the moth overwinters in the ground around the base of the tree. And then in the spring, they, they pupate and the, the female moths, they can't fly. They climb up the trunk of the tree and then lay their eggs up in the canopies. And then the caterpillars obviously emerge and eat all the foliage. So they had this massive outbreak um, just over 100 years ago. Where, where this was happening to the whole avenue. So what they did was they painted grease bands around the trees. They do it with apples and other things for things called the codling moth, which also um, overwinter in the ground. And what it does, it stops them coming up the trunk. So they hit the grease band and that they don't go any further. They either get stuck or they just turn around and, and go back down. They can't fly, so they, their only way up is to crawl. So they painted these grease bands around all the way down through the avenue to to stop that to stop that attack which clearly worked and yeah a hundred years later those black bands from where the grease had been on the tree had marked the bark and those marks are clearly visible and and you'll see you'll see that in the book and then the white bands the white bands were paint, were painted on trees not actually along that avenue 
in actual fact, there, there are some. So our border, one of the borders at Kew Gardens here is um, the main road that goes through along one side. Uh, and it's a main thoroughfare out of London, sort of out into the country, if you like. And during the, the blackout in the Second World War, obviously it was lights out. No one could, you know, even if you're driving, you couldn't have your lights on. So what they did, they painted white bands, white bands of lime around the trees to make the road edges more visible for people who were driving down or walking down or riding down during during periods of darkness in the blackout. And again, those white those white painted bands are still clearly visible from yeah. I mean they're not quite as old. They're from the nineteen They're relatively 30s. old at this point. Still relatively old. But yeah, mm. it's it, it's amazing that, you know, something you can paint on a tree like that can be visible yeah, a hundred years mm-hmm. later, when it was literally only just grease painted onto to stop an insect. So you'll look along the avenue and you've just got these clear black horizontal lines all the way down through, which kind of takes your eye along down through the avenue. And it's a mm-hmm. really long avenue. I mean, over two miles long. Wow. Um, I wanted to ask you about another sort of human intervention into trees um, example, which is um, in the book, you talk about Dutch elm disease, um, yeah. and obviously how this hugely impacted trees in Britain and Ireland and obviously further away as well. Um, but that some mature elms, for example, you talk about some in Brighton um, were saved. How? What it is with a Dutch elm, I mean, when you when you look at the the old master's paintings from you know, the 15th century, 16th and 15th century, the landscape paintings from uh, painters like Constable, the main trees you'll see are wonderful old elms. I mean, that they that and oak were our two main big broadleaf trees in the countryside. So you'll see a lot of these, a lot of these trees would have been, would have been elm trees. It would have covered much of the countryside of England. Dutch elm disease is not actually from Holland, it was actually um, discovered and described by Dutch, by Dutchmen. So that that's where the name Dutch elm disease comes. So a lot of people kind of blame the Dutch for spreading this disease that wiped out all the elms in the UK. But it's not actually it's not actually true. But the the, the way the way oaks uh, sorry the way that the elms still survive is they they get to about. 12 to 15 years old, and that's when they're big enough for the beetles to infest them. So they, they, they continually regenerate themselves from the old roots. So you, we do still have elms all over the countryside, but they only ever get to be at most 20 years old, and then they die because of the, the, the Dutch elm disease. But down in Brighton, there's a park called Preston Park, and that park sits between the South Downs, which is like a a, um, a, a hill ridge so they're in a kind of a valley and then they have the the coast and the sea on the other side of them so they're kind of sitting low down and they're protected from the beetle coming in from the north by the south downs and then they're protected from anything coming across the sea from the english channel so there's a small area there where we still have a, a, a good few of our native of our native elms, but that is one of the few places in the whole of the UK where we actually have any of these magnificent trees. When I when I first started in um, tree surgery as an arborist, I say was more than forty years ago. That was probably for the first five years of my work. We were just continually going around 
taking down mature, I mean, absolutely huge elm trees that had died. There was an area fairly close to where I live called Horsenden Hill. And the hill was just absolutely clothed as a child. I can remember it being clothed in in um, elm trees. And I would go there with my friends. There was a you know a canal run through. So it was, it was a great place to go and play and explore. And then some 10, 15 years later, once I started working, or maybe 10 years later when I started working, um, the elms on on the Horson and Hill were totally decimated, and five years later, there wasn't there wasn't an elm left on there. So what what was a complete wooded hill, and we're talking of something that was probably covered an area of maybe a thousand acres, became a hill with just a few odd trees on it. So, I mean, it really was a devastating disease that that sort of worked its way and wiped out. Yeah. Mm. So yeah, I spent five years. Of my first my first working life, mostly taking elms down. We had fires going twenty four seven. And yet, despite that, you enjoy working with trees and have gotten to do not just that for the rest of your career. Thankfully, yeah, and, and I think you know I can remember there was a there was a particular tree that I remember, which was an elm tree, and and it was absolutely huge. It was in a junction of a road, and it was an area where I was brought up. And I can remember when, when we had to go and take the tree down, it was probably something like, I mean, I'm guessing now because when you're young, things always seem so much bigger. But it, it, it was something like probably, I don't know, 20 feet across and totally hollow. And it had like an entrance door where you could you could kind of walk into this opening of this tree. But all that was left was just this small, sad looking trunk that might have been, you know, 12 15 feet tall and everything else had died around it and I can remember just the amazement of, of being able to walk into that tree and you know that that may be one of my first recollections of you know thinking how amazing these ancient trees were and you know what, what a shame that one had been lost. So I'd love to as we come towards sort of the end of the interview um it's sort of I don't even know if you will have an answer to this because um you have such a massive amount of knowledge and experience already, um, obviously with all of your career and the trees. Um, but was there anything in the process of putting together this book, of researching this book, um, that nevertheless surprised you? There, there was, and I'm not. I'm not sure how factual this fact actually is. But you know, when when you when you look at things, I'll go back to oak trees again because they are, yeah, one of the one of the most amazing. I mean. My my favourite tree probably is an oak tree, what we call an English oak. I mean, they're actually a European oak, but we call them an English oak, oak here. And you know, when when I when I look at an acorn from an oak tree, and you know, you think in the palm of your hand, you could probably hold five of those acorns, so the the tree's seed, and each one of those has potential to grow to something so huge and so old. You know, over a thousand years with many that are over a thousand years and there was a fact that I came across where it where it said that a tree that attained that age of a thousand years could probably have produced as much as 10 million acorns I mean that's you know that that, that that's something to grow for that long and produce yeah that 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 many seeds I know there are things like orchids that produce millions of seeds but you know we're talking about something so huge and I'd never really thought about it you know that with with a lot of the um, seed bearing trees they have what they call mast years and a mast year is like every other year 
you potentially get a good year. So you'll you'll get a, a year where there's not many acorns on the tree. It, it could be a beech, it could be beech moss, it could be all different types of things. And then you get what they call a mast year, when the tree is absolutely covered with um with seeds with acorns. And so I kind of look at those mast years and and I think you know wow you know that the, the, there are just so many. I mean you can just you can hardly see the tree for acorns. And then for a year or two you'll see the same tree and there'll be nothing on it. But over the course of a tree's lifetime, if it if it gets to attain that age, yeah, it can produce a, a huge amount of, of acorns. So, I, I, you know, 10 wow. million sounds like a big number to me. It, I, yeah, I'm struggling to imagine how many acorns that would actually be. Um, that would be quite stunning on a number of levels. Um, so thank you for sharing that fact. And then as we come to the end of the interview, um, obviously you are still the head of the Arboretum at Q. So you have a... Uh, busy and it sounds quite fun uh, day job to be getting on with Um, but now that this book is done um, is there anything else you're working on now or next I am you know about 10 years ago my then wife said to me that you know because I'd been in horse growth so long she she said you you should write a book everyone's got at least one book in them she said to me and I was sort of undenied and undenied and and eventually I wrote a book on the, the the native flora of southern Spain because I'd, I'd traveled to Spain and um, a lot of the Mediterranean for about 15 years. So I'd put all my thoughts together and put it into a book. And when I'd done that book, it took me about a year and a half to do the book. I kind of had a void where I felt I needed to do something else. I thought, oh, maybe, you know, maybe I'll do a second book. And we're something like about seven or eight books down the down the road now. And it's something I really, <laughs> I really enjoy doing. Um, Sometime in the future, I hope to write another book on trees. I say I wrote the book on yew trees, which was a, a great book to write. I mean, it wasn't just the the trees, but a lot of the ancient yew trees grow in old um, churchyards. So there, there was lots of, yeah, lots of old churches with, you know, Saxon parts to them and Roman parts to them so that so that that was a, that was a great experience not just looking at the trees but looking at the architecture in the churches they grew around and then because of climate change about three years ago I, I wrote a book on drought tolerant plants to help people look at plants that they can grow in their garden certainly in the southeast of England but generally you know across the world lots of places are warming up now and you know in my 20 years at Kew there's things that we can grow outside now that we couldn't grow when I first came to Kew because it's much warmer, much drier. So it really was showing people the type of plants that maybe they should be looking at to grow in the future, that were going to be drought tolerant, you know, and you'd use less water, less maintenance. So I wrote that book. Then I then I did this one on the great trees of Britain and Ireland. And then I kind of thought that I would have a think about what I was going to do next. I'd love to do another tree book, but actually you know, the, the the season, the winter season is a is a season that people tend to in England particularly, once we get to autumn, they they kind of tidy up the garden and put it to bed for the winter and they're sort of that's it now. You know, the, the, the seasons are gone, we're not gonna do anything through the winter. We'll look towards the spring when things all start to flourish again. But in actual fact, there are so many great plants that you can grow throughout the winter that are amazing colored stems 
of shrubs and trees, lots of bulbs. All the plants that flower during the winter are highly scented. They have to be because there's so few pollinators around. So lots of scent, lots of colour. And in actual fact, you know, when you're growing a garden or a, you're enjoying a garden at any time of year, the two, two of the main things that you're growing for is colour and scent. So, yeah, that's that's kind of what I'm working on is, is writing a, a book about plants that can have your winter season in a garden every bit as enjoyable as summer, spring or autumn. So... Amazing. Um, well, that sounds very cool and solving a clear um, gap, I think, in a lot of people's knowledge um, or maybe just my knowledge, but still. Um, but while you go off and work on that, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Great Trees of Britain and Ireland, uh, published by Read Media in 2022. Um, Tony Hall, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for asking me. <laughs>